Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. In their new book, How We Ended Racism, Realizing a New Possibility in One Generation, Justin Michael Williams and Shelley Tegielski imagine a future in which racism will no longer exist. They invite us to imagine it's the year 2050 and racism has ended. And they lay out an eight-part framework for how we can make that radical idea of reality. It's published by Sounds True Books and brings Shelley Tegielski, a mindfulness teacher, speaker, author, activist, and the founder of the CNN Hero featured... Uh, global grassroots organization, Pandemic of Love, and Justin Michael Williams, an author and Grammy-nominated recording artist to our show now. Welcome. Although we uh, are awaiting Justin Williams. No, we're no, both we're here. here. Oh, we're you're there. Here. Okay, we're great. We're in the glad. same room. <laughs> oh, I, oh, that's great. Okay. Well, yeah. so let's begin with you. Justin, from what I see in the news every day, I can't imagine a time when racism will no longer exist. Well, this is actually, you know, the whole premise of the book. And we think that's a part of uh, the problem that we're having in the world right now is if we always only see this being a problem, then we'll never actually mm -hmm. be able to get to a solution where it's ending. And, you know, one of the things that Shelley and I are so grateful for in the writing of this book and all the research and science that we had to put into it is that ending racism actually really is possible. It's just something that a lot of people aren't accustomed to actually thinking about. Well, Shelley, in, in describing immigrants and his political opponents, Donald Trump has used the word vermin. Elon Musk endorsed an anti-Semitic post. Um, so it's, it's in the news all the time, isn't it? It is in the news all the time. But I also think that, you know, Media focuses, as as we know, and and social certainly traditional mainstream media as well as social media, um, exists to get eyeballs and clicks and to be controversial. Um, and I think that when you look at historically, um, you know, the bell curve really where people are polarized and how many people really are on those fringes, whether it's on the on the liberal left or on the hard right, um, it's not most people. We really do have a critical mass of people who do think alike and just do not have the tools to be able to communicate um, in an effective way. They don't know how to have difficult conversations. You know, I can tell you that uh, when I was growing up, sitting around the dinner table, we were told we don't talk about politics, we don't talk about religion, we don't mm. talk about sex, we don't talk about, and so. When you grow up and you don't know how to have these types of conversations with people, it becomes really challenging um, as an adult to be able to have, you know, an, an effective exchange where we and we're seeing the result of that today, not just on the news, but also in Congress, for example, right, where people just hmm. do not have the capacity to have productive conversations and they threaten and, and each other. They threaten to hit each other, in fact. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. But I want to just build on a, the point um, that you made, you know, earlier in asking, you know, Justin about um, you can't even imagine a future uh, where racism won't exist because of what's happening today. And really, that's the first chapter of our book mm -hmm. is really about how we can create from the future and how we need to stop running 
um, away from something, i.e. racism, and start running towards something, which is the end of racism. And there's a very distinct difference between those two things. Scientifically, scientifically speaking, if we um, stand in the future at a time when we believe that racism has ended, if we just stand in the future, if we say it's 50 years in the future, it's 100 years, just pick, pick a timeline. This is true. What did I have to do to get here? What did we have to collectively do to get here? And that's really the premise of the book. That's why the book is even called mm. How We Ended Racism. Not that we ended it today. Not that yeah. Justin and Shelley ended racism. We're standing 50 years in the future. I won't even be around. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, your legacy will be around. And this conversation will certainly be around. And I think yeah. that that's something worth contributing to, right? Now, I have two guests. And uh, obviously, I don't want to just keep on saying... Uh, Shelley, what do you say? Justin, what do you say? I'll, I'll throw out questions and uh, trust that you'll answer them <laughs> equally, okay? Yeah, we got you. <laughs> uh, we got you you yeah. say that being anti will never work and fighting against racism will never work. It will only fight back. Well, that sounds like a losing battle. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and it is because this is the thing, you know, one of the things that we've been hearing in the rhetoric for the last several years, um, especially as like work towards anti-racism has become growingly popular, is this idea that we have to be lifelong anti-racist and it will take generations and generations and every generation forever forward for every every lifetime is going to have to do their part to fight racism. And one of the things that we know to be true that, that has been studied now is all the companies and organizations that put all this effort into diversity, equity, and inclusion and training and anti-racism are now saying a couple of years later that they feel like it all really fell short and didn't work the way that they wanted it to work. And that the um, you're, we're seeing all these DEI officers being fired and, and, and all of the movement being divested from. And so what we are trying to show people is there's a reason why this work didn't work. It's not because the work wasn't good, but it's because if we are only focused on what we're fighting against and we're not focused on what we're moving toward, if we're only being anti, then we're not able to actually say what we want and what we're for. So even if you did dismantle the whole system, we haven't spent any time figuring out what we're going to replace yeah. it with that doesn't just keep perpetuating the same problems again and again and again. So you're saying we must fight for something rather than fight against something. Exactly. Now, was that what happened when you were collaborating on writing this book? <laughs> yeah, so the way that it actually all started, to be honest with you, we didn't come into this as some like hopeful optimists, you know, at all. We were so skeptical about this whole thing. Like we were, had the gift to be a part of a, a really prestigious fellowship program at the Garrison Institute in Garrison, New York. We were in this fellowship program for two years together. And that program, it asked us, the whole purpose of it was, it asked us to ask a big, audacious, bold question about the world. And we were in the moment of trying to figure out what that question would be. When that happened, uh, George Floyd was murdered mm. and world, and inside of the pandemic and the whole world was starting to turn their sights into this anti-racism work. And Shelley and I looked at each other and 
You knew each other? We knew each other from yeah. just, yeah, we had met before the fellowship. We had done Because your teaching. backgrounds are so different. You're the host of the, of the Motivation for Black People podcast, and Shelly, you're a mindfulness teacher, speaker, author, and activist, uh, founder yeah. of yeah, the and, CNN and, Hero featured global uh, grassroots organization, Pandemic of Love. Uh, yeah. y- you have common ground here? Oh, yeah. We on paper, we shouldn't. And that's the whole point. Justin and I, you know, for people listening at home, like you can't see us, but Justin's a queer black millennial and I'm a white Jewish um, Generation X, you know, mother. And so, um, you know, we we on paper shouldn't necessarily have so many intersections and overlaps. And yet, because both of us have done such deep inner work and because we have so many tools that Justin and I have been um, employing throughout our life, um, you know, we are able to model this for people and have these safe containers and create these safe spaces to have really intense, difficult conversations where we may not always agree on things, um, but we can come to a consensus and we can still be respectful and we can still um, be productive in moving the ball forward. Well, this just, is one of the Justin, you, you, does this apply to you even more? Because you grew up uh, gay in a biracial, low income household. Yeah, I mean, you know, both of us actually have a pretty interesting story around how we grew up, even though it was completely different backgrounds with kind of dealing with racism in different forms. And you know, for me, I think the thing that I really learned from my family, this was the the biggest reason that I have hope and believe that this is possible is, you know, my mom is a white woman. And when she married my dad, my my family on my mom's side disowned my mom. Mm. Um, they Boy. kicked her out of the house, disowned her. And they thought that my mom was going to call off the wedding. And she <laughs> did it. She followed love and she went forward. And then later, our family decided to try to come back together. And it, this is the family that I ended up growing up in. And what was so fascinating about this is in our family, you know, they went from extreme racism to absolute total love and connection. And it wasn't like abracadabra, Cinderella, you know, happily ever after. It was really learning the tools to actually have these conversations and see that it is possible mm-hmm. for people who seem so extreme to really change. Well, they they uh, they decided not to be angry all the time, try to work things out, which uh, makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Well, what Shelley talks about a lot that I'll you know that I'll mention here is it's about proximity. Yeah, you know, it's about being being able to be close to people who are different than you, and then you end up seeing just how much more alike you are than you are different. Exactly, I think that's really the key. The key is is that it's very hard to love what you don't know, very hard to care about what you don't know and what you don't see, and just based on perception um, and narratives. And and I think again, that's a lot of what the media and social media is perpetuating these days. It's like it's giving you this. Um, this, this mythical illusion that you know something or you know someone because you heard a soundbite or you saw like a short video or somebody told you their own opinions or thoughts about something or someone. And that's not really the case. The idea is that, you know, we, um, the more we get to 
know each other and the more we're willing to be in discomfort and sit with our own discomfort and ask ourselves difficult questions about why we think the way we do what what traumas in our life and what you know upbringing and what um contributed to our thoughts and the way that we are but also what even came before us right because there's there's a lot of research now around um epigenetics which is essentially intergenerational trauma and so we get into that in the book as well um in terms of how to approach that and how to look at it and how to really go deep into the the shadow or the cave if you will with that flashlight um and be able to um you know unearth and uncover and discover um some of our own biases and some of our own um reasons for the way that we react to situations. Well, you say that in writing this book the two of you set aside your differences and adopted a possibility perspective. But um did you find that was easy to do or was that something that you had to keep on working on as you continue to work on the book? No, I mean I think um n- n- first of all none of this work is 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 easy. Um, but also I think nothing worth achieving is ever really easy, is it? Uh, in life in general, right? Um, what I wanted to point out as well is that this book was written not just for one type of audience. It wasn't really supposed to be, you know, in, in an echo chamber written for people who already believe that racism might be able to end or the hopefuls or what have you. We actually had this book sent after three and a half years of working on it to um, two bias readers. Mm. One was um, a professor that's a critical race theory at a major university. And one was to a Fox news correspondent. And we were like, let's let's find two people that uh, if you put them in a room together would probably think that they can't agree on anything. And let's see if how they react to the book before it comes out. And it was astonishing to see just how alike they are in terms of their comments and their thoughts and the the work because there are worksheets at the end of every chapter, there's like inner work sections where you can actually take notes and there are prompts and it gets you to start like really thinking about everything that we're teaching from your own lens, like really turning the camera inward into yourself. And so seeing their responses to those prompts and those questions was really, I think, a, a moment for both of us, for, for Justin and I to recognize exactly that people are more alike even those that on paper are like, I'm a conservative, I'm a liberal, I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat. And at the end of the day, when we are able to uncover a luminous purpose amongst all of us, we're actually, um, you know, we're, we have a starting point from which to begin a discussion. My guests on today's Leonard Lopez at Large are Shelley Tegelski, T-Y-G-I-E-L-S-K-I, and Justin Michael Williams, their book, How We Ended Racism, Realizing a New Possibility in One Generation is published by Sounds True Press. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Well, when we have people who have, who still think that Donald Trump won the election, isn't it hard to get past kind of fixed ideas? Uh, you say we can't fix racism and can't improve it. We, but 
Well, what is fixed racism? Yeah, I mean, that's I love that you asked this question because, you know, one of the things that we hear people say all the time is we're going to fix racism. We're going to make it better. We're going to heal it. How do we solve this? And one of the questions that Shelly and I looked at each other and asked was, what is fixed racism? Mm -hmm. What is healed racism? What is better racism? Like, even if we accomplished whatever that goal is, we don't want that either, right? And so how do we play a bigger game? And, you know, one of the things that we are really grateful for and to speak about skepticism with you is we honestly went into this asking the question, can racism end inside of this fellowship program? And we did not think the answer was yes. And I would guess that 99% of the people looking at the cover of your book before they read it would also think that way. Agreed. Yes, we agree. Yeah. That's right. And so what happened is we actually, the fellowship program armed us with scientists from all different fields from neuroscience, psychology, physio, you know, I mean, sociology, anthropology, everything. And what we discovered from every field of science was that racism not only can end, but we don't actually need to learn anything new for it to end. Humanity has now at this point in history for the first time ever, all the tools, all the knowledge, Everything that we need, all the research, it's all here for us. The issue is people don't even consider that it is possible for it to end. And so those tools never get picked up and learned or used for ending racism. They just get used to keep fighting it. And like we said, if we keep fighting it, it just keeps fighting back. Right. And and one of the things that I wanted to just jump in here is, you know, when you think about... um just this idea of like, can you even believe that something is possible? You know, I can, I can, uh, remind, especially, um, maybe some of the older listeners, you know, who remember when John F. Kennedy, um, made a, a really imp- a powerful speech saying, we're going to get a man on the moon by this date, right? And it seemed impossible when he said it because nobody had ever done it. And, it seemed like a very short timeline and it seemed like just, you know, like, like the odds were stacked against us, certainly. So the, the point is, is that when you are able to rally people around even just a possibility, it is more likely to come true because people are now able to believe that it can come yeah. true. And that's the first hurdle we've got to get over. Well, your book's methods promise to result in less reactivity, greater compassion, open-mindedness. Don't people have to be open to doing that before any changes can be made and be willing to take a stand? Um, Well, that's exactly the point, Mm -hmm. because our book actually talks first and foremost, the first four chapters are really dedicated to inner work. And we believe that the reason why efforts around diversity, equity, and inclusion training, especially when you look at like how many, how much money corporations and institutions have invested in this in the last several years, why those have been now shown to not be as effective as people had hoped is because we didn't focus on first and foremost, helping people do the inner work. The best version of the world starts with the best version of us. 
And we cannot skip over the inner work because if we skip over the inner work and move first to the outer work, how we show up in the world, how we're expected to have conversations, how we're expected to respond to people versus react to people, then we're, 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 we're never going to get there because we haven't first and foremost turns, turned the lens on ourselves and said, who do I need to become to be able to receive and realize this world? Who do I need to be? What version of myself do I need to uncover and to um, invest in becoming in order to make it so? And that's kind of where there's a big disconnect. Well, you began working on this book together as the COVID pandemic was changing the way people lived. And the news uh, reports were full of stories of black people being killed by the police. So, yeah. I would think that that would have actually uh, kind of make you a little reluctant to collaborate on such an ambitious book. Well, you know, it's interesting. Like we kind of talked about, you know, with everything that was happening in the world and us seeing it as we as we do see, you know, some of these things not getting better. The question becomes why is this not getting better? Mm -hmm. Why does this continue happening, even though there's protests and efforts and posting and all the things that people are doing and laws passed even and body cameras and all the things that get implemented? Why is this still happening? And it goes back to what Shelley was saying is it's still happening because we have to change people. People are the ones who actually make the laws and all of these things turn into the reality that we're living inside of. And so if we're not a people who learn to live in a world where we can actually come together, you know, one of the things that happens is people say stuff like this, right? On on either side, because we talk to people who have all different kinds of beliefs. They say, you know, I just want to be someone, I just want there to be a world where we can all be in unity. But then if you ex- you say that, but then you experience someone who thinks different than you, and all of a sudden you're combative and negative and defensive. So you're not actually ready to live in a world with unity because you can't be a person who's ready to receive a differing opinion than you. So but how, how, do you, you tr- how do you deal with a world in which uh, governors like uh, Ron DeSantis not only are uh, opposed to teaching black history, in fact, uh, they suggest that um, slavery was a good thing because it taught black people trades, but also um, are critical of uh, of any teaching of, of uh, equality of gay people with, with straight people. Uh, you are a double victim, aren't you? I am. But you know what I mean? First, first thing first is you vote them out. But the second thing, you know, that's really important to understand is no movement for social change happened because the politician said, you know what, let's just make this change now. That's never happened in history, right? From women's rights to gay rights to ending slavery to segregation. It's not just like all of a sudden, all the nice politicians came together and said, you know what, we're just going to change this law and change the world for the better. What's happened is the people, which Shelley has talked about, the people which we know, we've traveled all over this country. I've had, I have family members on my mom's side of the family who have very different political beliefs than I do, who have voted for, you know, 
people like Donald Trump, who are amazing, lovely, incredible humans who can sit and have conversations and create understanding. So what we're trying to get people to see is to go beyond this mirage of the media that makes it seem like everyone is so extreme and realize that about 90% of us are actually people who want a lot of the same things. We look at the polls, what? Most of America on both sides want universal health care. Most of America on both sides want some kind of gun reform, something. Most of Americans, but this is not what we're getting because we're being fed these extreme narratives that we're falling into. So we're hoping to galvanize people to help us see that we can actually come together and make these changes that we want to see. You propose a step-by-step action plan that includes exercises, meditations, and inner work. Um, and every technique is designed to expose and heal the, the hidden racism within ourselves and society. But is it fair to say that some people don't want to give up their racist ideas? Huh. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll say this really quick is I think most people don't realize their racist ideas. And I think that when people do discover them, with kind of the current rhetoric around racism, what happens is people get shamed and blamed and guilted because of the beliefs that they have. It isn't going to hurt Elon Musk, even though everybody's being critical of him. He's still going to be the richest man in the world. Well, yeah, but, but also like we don't need Elon Musk on our side to change the world. You know what I mean? I think a critical mass of people. And so I think that, you know, one of the things that Shelly and I really feel strongly about is there's not just um, work that just, let's say, like, you know, a lot of people think that it's just white people or just conservative people or just people who we consider, quote unquote, racist who have to do work to dis- to dismantle this system and create something new. But it's actually all of us, even me as a black queer man, like I have to look at who I think I'm superior to who I'm supreme to, who I'm othering, to make sure that I can create a world that's actually more equal for all of us. Well, you feel you're superior to the bigots, don't you? No. No. We're not no. superior to the bigots. We're, we're just more self-aware and awakened to, to what our biases are and were. And so the, re- the idea is that we believe that every single person on this planet, if they could have access to tools to become more self-aware and to be willing to be in a proximity with people that are different than them, that it can, you know, lower, lower the defenses. So like, you know, there's, there's, um, there's a really um, incredible guy named Daryl. Do you remember his last name? Daryl Davis. Daryl Davis, Davis, who um, is a black musician um, who has now connected with, befriended, and literally um, has in his closet the cloaks of um, over 20 Ku Klux Klan members, Mm. former members. One of them was the head of an actual chapter or whatever they they call them, the chapter of a Ku Klux Klan, you know, um, in the South. And it's incredible because, you know, through proximity through befriending somebody who, you know, you would say is the ultimate bigot, right? The Ku Klux Klan member. 
who would wear a robe and like had this initiation and 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 belief system if you can change the radical thinking of someone like that through proximity um then that that should be uh, you know a roadmap that's something that should should uh, absolutely give people hope well they can cut both ways can't it when i my first uh radio show uh on a regular basis was a gospel show i played black gospel music for a couple of years and then it was pointed out that i was inappropriate because of my skin color uh, although the man who replaced me did not know as much about gospel music as i did but so this could cut both ways can't it i wound up losing that job no and so this is actually a part of the conversation that we're helping people to unpack more deeply because we think a part of what the world had to go through to kind of get to the point that we're at now where we can really start to come together and experience the nuance is there was this phase in this wave where it's like you know you're appropriating our culture or this is for us and not for you and you need to make sure the microphone goes to these kinds of people and what we're what we've experienced now in the world is see, people are noticing that that doesn't work and it's actually not true and all art all music all of all of it is just a build upon something that came before it right and it is for all of us now there's a difference between appropriating something and and appreciating something or honoring something but i think even though it can go both ways what we're trying to show people in this book is that there is a way that is actually proven by science to actually help us come together instead of keep perpetuating these divides. So I would say, you know, that the experience that you had has the possibility depending on who you are to perpetuate the same problem that people are trying to solve. Right? And so it sounds like you've dealt with it in a, you know, a really good way. I moved and- on, that's all. And I've been complimented by any number of young black people who told me, you know, your show was very important to me. It taught me about my own culture. Well, yeah. I would think that we, should, we that's something we would want in our society. But I have yeah. to tell our audience that they're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. you're enjoying this conversation with Justin Michael Williams and Shelley Tegelski. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of their book, How We Ended Racism. Uh, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show. And we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and then the number two WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Low Paid at Large. And thank you very much. And we return now to Justin Michael Williams and Shelley Tegelski. I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. 
Uh, yeah, you're doing it. You're doing it better than most. So this is great. <laughs> <laughs> Their book, How We Ended Racism, Realizing a New Possibility in One Generation, is published by Sounds True Press. Um, now, your, uh, your book's methods promise to result in less reactivity, greater compassion, and open-mindedness. Don't people have to be open to doing that before any changes can be made? And be willing to take a stand? Yeah, of course. They I mean, we're not we're not dragging anybody into this kicking and screaming. What ultimately happens for most people is there's like a seminal moment. There's there's a there's a point where um you know they have an experience or there's a consequence or there's um a pattern that they just finally get tired of going you know, through the same pattern. And in our book, we actually... So they become ashamed of their privilege. Yeah. Well, we'll talk about that. We mm. Let's talk about the big P, because there is a chapter that we call the big P, where we talk about the, the word privilege and, again, how it's been mm. totally um, sort of hijacked. But, but what I just want to get to is that, you know, to answer your first question, is that, um, you know, people um, are willing to come to this work when they have this like um this this aha moment and it doesn't have to be this like huge you know eureka this is i suddenly woke up and i realized all of my ways were erroneous <laughs> you know but rather they it it could even be like a small crack where you know at a time as 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 leonard cohen said right the small crack is where the light gets in and so i think if it just small cracks where Eventually, there's there those there's sort of like a cavern that that occurs, and you're able to expose or or be willing to finally make a change because something happens in your life. And for example, in Justin's family's case, it was his mother marrying a black man, um, and suddenly the family was confronted with and forced to have these conversations that they never thought they would ever mm. have to have, right? Because now they have biracial grandchildren and and children that look different than um, than what they thought. And so, you know... The and they had is, to explain the situation to their friends who are often uh, yeah, bit, exactly. bit racially biased themselves. Absolutely, because we live in societies where we tend to only flock to and 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 you know, hang out with people who look like us and people mm. who think like us. And again, these echo chambers that are now further perpetuated by social media and by the internet, where we only get news from people who already think like we do or or people who have a bend, the same bend that we do. And so we're not, we're just reaffirming the, our beliefs as opposed to um, being willing to, again, be uncomfortable and, and begin to start thinking about things in a different way. And so it's only when we're confronted with the fact that there is a different way mm. that we're that we're suddenly forced to have these exchanges and difficult conversations. You say that we don't have to be ashamed of our privilege, but that we should see it as an entry point to help the movement for change. Yeah, so one of the things that happens that we see all the time right now, and this kind of is what we are trying to reorient people toward with kind of some of the damage that's been done with the last several years of anti-racism training is it's infused with a lot of shame, blame, and guilt. 
Hmm. And what we know from the science and what we learned from all of our research is that shame, blame, and guilt shut down the centers of the brain that allow for learning and growth. And so no matter what, no matter how conscious you think someone is, no matter how much you know conversation training they've had, if you shame, blame, or guilt someone, their brain shuts down. They can't hear, they can't learn, hmm. they can't grow. It just period. It doesn't matter who we are. Some of us bounce back quicker, but- that's beside the point. As it relates to privilege, what I want people to really understand is think of this example. You know, Shelley and I both grew up in, you know, in tough backgrounds and we didn't grow up with the privilege that we even have today. You know, I personally grew up in a home in the Bay Area of Northern California with gunshot holes outside of my house. Hmm. And I now live a life that if I have children, my children are going to have so much more privilege mm. than I ever had growing up. And I wouldn't want them to be ashamed of that. What I would want instead is to teach them how having that privilege creates a responsibility and a possibility for them to actually do more good in the world. Yeah, you, so- uh, you illustrate that by with a thing of saying, if we escape a burning house before the fire department arrives and others are still trapped inside, our responsibility is to grab a hose and start dousing the house with water because yeah. having privilege gives us the opportunity to hold a hose. Hold and hold more hoses. Like the right. more privilege you have, the more hoses you can hold. Okay. And what a lot of people are being taught to do now who have privilege is like, oh, let me be quiet. Let me hide because I shouldn't be flaunting my privilege because right. I grew I'm, up. I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed. ashamed. the burning house. Yeah. And then they, instead of them holding hoses, which is what we need, they hide, you know, and don't help. And so if we can really raise a generation of people and I'm not just talking about youth. I'm talking about all of us who learn how to use our privilege for good. We can actually see a big change in the world. You wanted to add to that, Shelley? No, I was okay. just uh, well, ta- Yeah, I, I just wanted to point out that, like, to allude to your metaphor, it's a metaphor from the book that really it's just about making sure that you're not ashamed of the fact that you're that you survived something, whether it's a. a house that had bullet holes outside of it hmm. or um you know the fact that you were born into um wealth or um you know survived the burning house so to speak you suggest a question we can ask ourselves as a litmus test prior to having a difficult conversation do i want to be heard or do i want to be effective yeah exactly exactly it's, uh, it's one of the most important things we have to ask because a lot of people, you know, are, we're in this phase where people are like, well, I just need to be heard. I just need to speak my truth. And what we ask people to say is, what is your goal really? Because if your goal is to get someone to change, if someone has done something wrong and you want them to hear, learn, change, and consider doing something differently, then you have to approach the conversation from a very different place. Without coming across as superior. Correct. Superior, blame, shame, guilt. And what we, I just want to be clear. We don't think, like a lot of people, when they hear us saying this, they think that we're saying every conversation needs to be calm and silent and loving in this, (laughs) like, you know, kind of way. And that's not what we're saying. Like, you can be intense, you can actually even shout, but it doesn't have to come in a way that is dehumanizing. 
Correct. to other people. Right. That is shaming, blaming, or guilting. It comes from a place of, of learning, growth, and connection. Yeah. And I, I just want to also add that, like, to build on a phrase that you just said, you know, where people say, I just want to speak my truth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the word truth for a moment, right? There, there, one of the chapters in our book is really, um, or sections in our book is about agreeing on what is true. And we live in a world right now where um, suddenly the truth is a matter of opinion and it's not a matter of, um, you know, fact, right? Black or white. Everybody believes that they have their own truth. And so what we do in the book is we ground um, this concept um, and and basically we talk about um, how to delineate, how to really tell the difference um, between what is true, what we believe to be true, even if it's, quote unquote, our truth and what is not true. Well, and so. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, Justin, do you want to add to that to talk about assertions? And- well, yeah, I was just going to say, you know, without this is a big chapter in the book. And one of the things that becomes really important is if we don't know whether what we're saying is true versus it being an opinion, mm-hmm. then what happens is we end up arguing with each other to no ends because you can never prove someone's opinion to be true or false, because it's an opinion. And you and, point out that saying racism is unavoidable would be like saying that the Holocaust was unavoidable, or that American slavery was unavoidable, or that refusing the LGBTQ community the right to marriage is unavoidable. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And, and that's these are one of the things, like, you know, when people... Um, think about racism. And we were this way too. So we want to be clear that like again and again, we came into this with all of this skepticism as well and just continue to be proven wrong, which is what made us decide to come together to write a book to help people really see what the, what the actual truth is about this situation. And racism is not something that just happens automatically when you put a group of diverse people together. It is not anthropologically, scientifically, Race was a concept that was created for power and control. It has no biological standing. There's no reason this thing has to exist at all. But None. it's also a sense of that there is an other. Right. And, and this is something that we have done throughout human history, right? Human, the human species has othered and we have othered through all of time. But the idea that we have to other based upon a concept called race that is relatively new in human history is something that can can be eradicated. Well, as we approach the 40th anniversary of the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday becoming a law, 2023 isn't a dream society that uh, King imagined. Affirmative action has been is over, as, according to the Supreme Court. DEI officers are losing their jobs at corporations and universities. And the uh, partisan divide uh, seems to continue to deepen in this country. So are we doomed to live in a world where racism is inevitable? You're saying the opposite. We are saying the opposite. And we're saying like that, you know, look, what's the alternative for us all to say, like, 
everything's going to hell and we should just throw our hands up in the air and say like, there's nothing I can do. Oh, well, you know, no, absolutely not. Like we believe that, you know, this is something that's worth again, fighting for, um, instead of Mm -hmm. just fighting against, like, let's paint the picture of what things can be like, because things are so dismal. You talk about calling forward rather than calling out. And I want to get to that in just a moment. My yeah. guests are Shelley Tegelsky and Justin Michael Williams. Their book, How We Ended Racism, Realizing a New Possibility in One Generation from Sounds True Books. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. You say messy conversations are essential. Um, so what are the differences between calling forward and calling out? So this is one of our favorite topics in the book. And one of the things that I think people like to dive into right away when they hear about this concept in the book and what we know, I'll start with calling out, you know, we've, we, no one is, uh, (laughs) you know, no one is questioning what cancel culture is and calling out is we all know that calling out is when you're naming something that someone did wrong. But what happens is calling out gets infused with shame, blame, and guilt, which we talked about already kind of shuts down the centers of the brain that allow for learning and growth. Calling forward is different than calling out because while calling out is naming what some somebody did wrong, calling forward is actually a call to something greater. It's an invitation to be something greater. And we walk through actual steps in the book and we give people kind of a Mad Libs style preparation exercise where they can prepare themselves to have a conversation where they need to call someone forward. And we've had people, thousands of people from around the world use this method before we actually turned it into the book because it helps you actually learn, okay, what is it about what this person is doing that is harmful to me, but not just what's harmful. What is the value that is being broken by this person's action and how can I invite them into a greater state of wholeness and integration? And it just allows for a completely different conversation. And we walk people through this conversation and many other conversation techniques throughout the book that they can use in their real life. Well, you say messy conversations are essential. Yeah, they are, you know, and you know, one of the words that I've been using a lot lately is courageous conversations You know, we call them messy conversations because sometimes these conversations are not easy for us to have, which is why when we think about having courage to have the conversations, we're having the courage to stand for a greater possibility than what we think is possible for ourselves and others. If enough of us learn the skills needed and take them into our individual areas of influence, with all of our fields of expertise, into all of our circles, and into all of our relationships. You you suggest we can and will end racism together? Yeah, absolutely. We don't suggest it. We, We, I think, provide a very clear roadmap for that possibility to occur. Absolutely. I think we, and and again, I think to stress your point, we, all we need is a critical mass of people. We don't need a hundred percent of people to, you know, to believe in this. We need a critical mass that it creates like a domino effect or a snowball effect, um, similar to other major shifts in history 
you know, from the end of slavery to civil to the to civil rights to schools being um, desegregated to um, you know the LGBTQ community being allowed to marry um, to even just a couple weeks ago where the Pope you know basically said that trans people can um, be baptized and you know so it's it's incredible to see but not, what- but uh, but he is all. Only one voice in in the church. There are an awful lot of religious people who feel the opposite. No, there are. But my point is, is that it takes one person to say something to create that possibility, that shift in thinking that something could be possible. Right. It takes somebody like a Martin Luther King to say, Mm. I have a dream that this could happen for people to be able to rally around the dream so that the dream can be realized. But I keep on pointing out, and we have very little time left, that things like affirmative action are being undermined. Uh, You're suggesting that we can end racism by 2050. That's just 25 years from now. I feel like we're moving in the opposite direction. Well, the reason that we put a timeline on this is because we wanted to say, we, we didn't want to say racism can end and then just let it like live on in perpetuity in the year 2700. We wanted to create like a sense of urgency for people and also something that is like a timeline in the foreseeable future. Um, and that is really important because when you're working towards a collective goal, right? To go back to the, to the example that I gave with, for example, putting a man on the moon, right? JFK mm-hmm. saying by this date, we're going to do it. Um, and, and then not only doing it, but actually exceeding the expectation, an expectation needs to be set. There needs to be a timeline so that something can actually, so people can rally behind something and push towards something and get it and have it occur. So you see this book is a step in that direction? A book is a step, this book is a step in the direction because we are creating the possibility and ask, inviting people in to believing this is the biggest hurdle believing that this is even possible because without that belief we can't do any of the other work we will never get there if every single person remains a skeptic and says but look affirmative action has been overturned and women's reproductive rights and this is what's Mm. happening in the world you're literally sitting standing only in the present moment the world is on fire both proverbially and literally you're only looking towards the history and this is what happened that got us here, but you're not looking towards the future of saying, but this is where we need to be heading. This is how it's going to change because we're so busy in the present moment fighting against, you know, these systemic institutional um, rights that are being ripped, ripped away from us um, for a variety of reasons um, rather than thinking about, okay, this is what's happening, but what can we do about it? What can we do about it, and how do we get there? And we're going to have to leave it there, unfortunately. But my great thanks to both of you for being on our show, Shelley Tugelsky and Justin Michael Williams, their book, How We Ended Racism, Realizing a New Possibility in One Generation, published by Sounds True Press. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having us, Leonard. We appreciate you. And let's hope that this is the start of something positive in our society. Yeah. You know, I think, I think, you know, the last thing that I'll say on here is that 
you know, what we're really excited about with this book is we had so much research put into it to show people what has to occur in society for racism to end being a possibility. And we're just excited to present those to people because we think when they read them and see them, people, everyone who's read it has said, oh my gosh, Mm. I didn't realize that I had a blindfold over my eyes and I was stuck in the situation. And now I'm ready to step into what's possible. So we really hope that laying out these steps for people helps them see a bigger possibility for the world. And that brings us to the end of our show. Uh, my great thanks to Keziah Glow, our executive producer, and to Reggie Johnson, our audio engineer, for all the important work that they do throughout the week. And, of course, my great thanks to our guests today, Justin Michael Williams and Shelley Tugelsky. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep this station going. We are going through rough times. In fact, all public broadcasting is going through a rough time. Other stations are laying people off. It makes the newspapers. Well, BAI wants to be able to pay its rent and pay its uh, pay for its transmitter, our tower. And we hope that you'll help us doing that to do that. By uh, if you have the means to do so, if you can make a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with, by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now because we need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, Anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of London Lopate at Large right now can receive a free copy of the book we've been discussing, How We Ended Racism. So make that call, 212-209-2950, or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member of the station, what we call a BAI buddy, for $5, $10, $15, $20, $25 a month for as long as you wish. It allows us to plan for the future. And we'll say thanks by giving, sending a BAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. Remember that you, any any contribution you give is tax deductible. We are the only station on the New York dial that is 100% listener supported. And uh, I hope that you can uh, join us again on Monday when photographer Barbara Mensch will be our guest. Uh, we'll see you then. Have a great weekend. <laughs>